I felt so invisible and so overlooked that in my mind, I didn't even realize that my mom would miss me if I walked out of the house after talking to Lillian and saying, I don't want to go back to Denver. You know, people moved around, shuffled around like chess pieces on a board. I thought, I'll just shuffle myself over to Lillian's house. Nobody will miss me. And I can stay here and they can all go back to Denver and work like slaves if they want to. But no, thank you. So I walked out of my house with my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and my Farrah Fawcett wings and Nike tennis shoes and, and walked towards my sister's house. I walked a little over three miles that day when she found me and picked me up. So I call that, you know, if you walk a little over three miles, it's a 5K. Yeah. So I call that my 5K to freedom. Welcome to the Swayology Podcast. I'm your host, Ann Watson, and I cannot wait to help you think like a business so you can inspire like a boss. I am a former corporate girl. I'm a multi-passionate entrepreneur turned business coach, and I'm here to bring you practical advice, inspiration, and motivation as you navigate the wild, wild world of online business and marketing. We are going behind the scenes with successful coaches, creatives, communicators, and entrepreneurs. We're getting real about their stories so you can learn everything you need to in order to love your business and your life. So whether you are working to earn an income or you aim to get your message out there, the Swayology Podcast is going to give you the tools you need to grow your self-worth and your net worth. It's not going to be easy, but I promise you it's going to be worth it. So if you're ready, let's get to it. Hey, hey. Okay, welcome back to the Swayology Podcast. Guys, I have such a special episode for you today. I'm actually going to give it to you in two parts. So this week, I have invited a very special guest. And if you guys are fans of documentaries, if you have Hulu and Disney Plus, then you probably know that at the time of this recording, the number one show on the platform is called Daughters of the Cult. It is the almost impossible to believe story of sisters Anna and Celia LeBaron, who were two of over 50 children of a violent polygamous cult leader. The story is beyond fascinating. And I am so excited to welcome Anna LeBaron to the show today. So this conversation was so good. I couldn't stop it at just the 30 minute mark, which is normally what I do. I just, we had to keep going with this conversation. So I'm going to give this to you in two parts. I actually met Anna a couple of years ago when she was promoting the book that she had written called The Polygamous Daughter. And I interviewed her when I was hosting the Declare podcast for any of you who have been following me since then. We became really good friends and her story continues to blow my mind, not just because of what she survived, which is huge, but because of the strength of her faith in God, despite all of it. Honestly, the story is going to amaze you and I just cannot wait for you to hear it. Today, we're going to talk about what it was like growing up in the cult and her daring escape from it when she was just 13 years old in what she calls her 5k to freedom. Ultimately, you guys, what I want you to see is how Anna has been through more trauma than most and has really persevered in her life. She's followed her dreams. She's built businesses. She's writing books. She's pursuing degrees. And I don't know about you, but I've got some trauma in my past. And I'm so inspired by Anna that I feel like if she can do it, then there's hope for me too. And that's what I want for you. Hope for you as you listen. Even if you can't resonate with growing up in a violent polygamous cult, Know that whatever you've been through, there is hope, not just that you'll survive, 
but that your story is going to be a catalyst for you and other people to live their best life. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens to Anna after the big escape, and you're not going to want to miss it. She even gets into some stuff they don't show on the documentary. I can't wait for you to hear this, but do me this favor. After you listen, please jump into my DMs on Instagram and let me know what you think. This story needs more conversation. Okay, I'm not going to make you wait any longer. Let's go ahead and get started with my conversation with Anna LeBaron. Anna, oh my gosh, it has been way too long. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the Swallogy Podcast. How are you? I am doing very well. This has been a wild couple of weeks that have completely blown me away. And I'm in the process of recovering, <laughs> which sure. you can imagine has been necessary. I'll bet. Okay. So for anybody listening who does not yet know, Anna is a very dear friend of mine who I met when she was promoting the book that she had written called The Polygamous Daughter, a memoir. And it was all about her life in a violent polygamist cult and how she escaped that when she was 13 years old. And I heard her on somebody else's podcast. I reached out to her. I was like, I need to know you more. I need to know your story more. And we became really good friends which has been such a gift and a blessing. And she just this month at the time of this recording has been part of releasing her story along with several of her siblings on a documentary created for Hulu that is right now currently rated the number one documentary on Hulu. And so I just updating our listeners, but also I have to say to you, Congratulations on the book, the number one documentary, on all of it. Just tell us about this. I mean, the documentary released January 4th on Hulu and is now on Disney Plus 2. And it has been um, such a surreal experience. Normally, my siblings and I get around when we gather together and we talk about our history and we do it in manageable bite-sized chunks that we can you know digest and metabolize and um, when we recorded the documentary and did all the interviews it was a lot and then to watch uh, just the series my sister and I Celia sat on her couch clinging to one another yeah as we binge watched all five episodes the minute it released at 11 p.m central time the day of the release and we binged watched the entire thing until 4 a.m there was a time when I had to like I'm holding on to her arm and I'm squeezing as hard as I can and my brain went Anna um, you can release your grip now. You can yeah. release your grip. It's okay. And then I would just slowly relax my hand and go, okay, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it was a lot to take in all at once, even for us who lived it and knew what was going to happen. It was a lot. Okay. So for people who aren't familiar with the book, they haven't seen the documentary yet. I said that you escaped a violent polygamist cult when you were 13 mm-hmm. Can you just explain for a minute, what is a violent polygamist cult? 
my father was the leader of a um, fundamentalist Mormon break off sect who practiced um, both polygamy, which means having more than one wife at the same time, and a doctrine called blood atonement, which means um, there are some sins that the blood of Christ can't cover. So you have to atone for your sin with the shedding of your own blood. And so those two doctrines were part of the very, very early teachings of the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that was founded by Joseph Smith and then Brigham Young. But those teachings are no longer part of the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's the ones who um, continued carrying on the legacy of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, which include my family of origin on my father's side. My family of origin goes back to a man named Benjamin F. Johnson, who was the um, confidant, how do I put it, a assistant and close associate of Joseph Smith. And then eventually Joseph Smith spiritually adopted uh, Benjamin F. Johnson as a spiritually adopted son. Hmm. So I am a first-generation Christian, first-generation monogamist on my father's side. So this goes back several generations, I think three or four. And you know, in the Bible, it says, you know, the sins of the father passed down three and four generations. Yeah. What people always forget is that right after that, God says, I'll bless a thousand generations of those who love me. And I say, I am generation one of a thousand that are blessed because of me. My children are blessed because of me, whether they like it or not. Yeah. My grandchildren are blessed because of me. Everyone who comes after me for a thousand generations is blessed because of me. Okay. That gives me goosebumps. That's so amazing. All right. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, honestly, but I do want to clarify because I've had the opportunity to watch the documentary that when you say blood atonement, like you can only pay for your sins with your own blood. This is a fatal thing. This is, yes. you have to spill your blood to the point of death. And your mm -hmm. father was responsible directly and indirectly for the mm -hmm. murders of 30 plus people? Over 30 people. And yeah. so the wake of devastation and pain and harm that he left in his wake, and not just him, him and a man named Dan Jordan, who was his right-hand man. Right. Um, both of them are, we consider, I consider responsible, those two men responsible for the devastation that they left in their wake. And it was, uh, we can't just, we can't talk about um, the harmful things that my father was responsible for without acknowledging the incredible pain that he inflicted on all the victims, not just the ones who died, but the right. ones that left behind the the people who loved and cared about them. There's just so much generational trauma that has had to be overcome by uh, the people that were harmed 
the victims. And if we're going to talk about who the victims are, including the people that experienced the murders and uh, their families, you also have to take into consideration, and I hope that your audience and everybody listening will just hear me out on this. It's a hard and a fine line I'm walking here. Sure. All of Ervil LeBaron's children, all 51 of us, and his half, like his stepchildren, my half siblings and step siblings, we were all victims too. Absolutely. Even the ones who have been responsible for some of the murders that we're talking about. Um, when you think about um, people born into and raised in a cult, groomed and um, raised with a gun in their hands and taught the doctrines of blood atonement and taught that you're actually doing someone a favor. Because unless they're blood is atoned and their sin is atoned for they're going to end up in outer darkness the worst possible place you can go to in the afterlife but if their sins are atoned for they get to at least have a chance at heaven in one of the degrees of glory that the the mormon faith talks about right so you're doing them a favor it's ideologies that are harmful and that you, we were raised with. I didn't really understand all of that because I was 13 when I got out and I was part of the younger set of siblings that like the worst of the worst didn't happen to me. I mean, enough bad things happened to me. I'm not trying to minimize the trauma, the neglect, the abuse or anything else that we endured as children. I'm not minimizing at all. I'm just saying the worst of the worst of the worst of it. Yeah. Uh, others of my siblings have endured far, far more. The other part is, you know, we now know psychologically that people's brains aren't fully developed until they're about 25, right? Your brain does not fully develop until you're 25. Yeah. And that's the best case scenario when you have a good mother and a good father who are helping you grow and attain and, you know, mature. Um, when you are, when your growth in every way possible, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, psychological, everything is stunted from the day you're born because of the childhood developmental trauma, every abuse you're imagining, neglect of every kind, educational especially. Many of my siblings responsible for these crimes were pulled out of school second, third grade, as soon as you were old enough to be put to work, right? Uh, you were pulled out of school and into forced slave child labor. 12 hour days, sometimes more, six days a week. And then on Sundays, a whole day of indoctrination. So, you know, in the documentary, people watching it don't, they don't always do the math. You know, I'm not a math magician, but please do the math as you watch because you know, when my brother Aaron became the grand patriarch, I think he was 17. Wow. Not, not even fully grown. Not e he was still a minor trying to lead the church of the kingdom of God, you know? Yeah. So 
oh, there's just so much. And, and saying all of that is not to excuse what they did. There is no way any of it is an excuse for any of a thing that happened. He's paying a price. He's still in prison. We have siblings still serving. We have siblings serving life sentences with no possibility of parole. And one of my brothers says that since he went into the prison system and was able to uh, continue growing and maturing and developing, um, he says, I'm more free in prison than I ever was on the outside. That is shocking. That he feels more free in prison than he did as a member of his father's polygamous cult. Mm -hmm. And that not one of my siblings, and I don't know that the documentary put a fine enough point on this, even though at the end, you know, they did give me and Celia the last word on, you know, that our family is out. It's been over 30 years. And since everyone, every one of us got out and began the the arduous process of putting our lives back together. It's been over 40 years for me, but my siblings, especially some of the KOGers that you're going to, you know, hear about in this documentary, uh, they've been out for 30 years plus. And it is two of my brothers who were part of the KOG who ended up dismantling the whole thing it's pretty brave yeah and when you were gonna walk away from the kog uh, you weren't supposed to whisper that to anybody you had to just get away and disappear if you wanted to live kog is kingdom of god that is the name of this particular sect right right after my dad died his group splintered off into like three or four groups depending on how you're counting and who is counting And that one splinter group ended up being many of my father's younger children. Um, One of the, I think the historian on there described it as Mad Max meets the Lord of the Flies or something like that. You know, it was just, they were just young kids trying to carry on what they believed was God's will. Right. And like you said, they were victims too. I want to ask you about you though. Because you escaped (laughs) at 13. And as I was watching this, you know, you you talk about your siblings were were victims, the people involved were victims of this brainwashing and this, you know, mind bending, gas lighting kind of environment, among other abuses. But you at 13 were one of the first, or you were the first to sort of have an epiphany and wake up and say, this isn't right. And you literally walked away. The wherewithal for a 13 year old blows my mind. Tell me a little bit about you just like having this light bulb moment. Like this isn't right. I'm leaving. I'm out. I got to get out of here. Well, I, I don't characterize Um, what I did as leaving a cult because at that time I did not know that I was in a cult when it's all you've ever known your whole life and it's your normal you don't know better yeah so I wasn't trying to escape a cult that was in effect the result of what happened 
but that wasn't what I was trying to do. In my father's group, when he was still alive, uh, people were shuffled around like chess pieces on a chessboard. Family groups were split up, people, kids dropped, taken away. We had factions of my father's cult spread out throughout the Southwest United States, California, Arizona, Texas, all over Texas, uh, Colorado, Oklahoma. And we were even starting one in Mississippi at the time um, before things kind of fell apart. But people were moved around like, uh, like you did not know when you went to sleep at night, you didn't know who was going to be in the house when you woke up, or even if you were going to be in the same house when you woke up. Like wow. People came and left in the middle of the night because so many people were wanted. And so the, um, because there were so many people and, you know, often three women sharing a house with 20 children, we weren't allowed to play outside. The adults were so much more concerned about what was happening among the adults. So kids just kind of felt invisible unless they were a problem and then they got beat. You know, right. I tried to not be a problem. I learned very quickly not to be a problem because I didn't like getting spanked and beaten. Um, but you just felt invisible. Like, so when I ran away, I had already experienced life under Dan Jordan in Denver, which was child slave labor. 12 hour days, six days a week. Um, I did not like that life. And at the time that my father died in prison, we had been living in Houston under Mark Shanoth, who was way more benevolent and had us in school. And we would work, we would go to his little private school that he started, like a school in his garage, because he wanted us educated, which is which I believe was important yeah. and, and good. And so we would go to school half a day and then we would work half a day, but half a day, 1230 to 530, you know, and then go home like kids. And then, I mean, it was, we were still in a cult. Okay. Right. 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 But it was better. And Mark would let us watch movies and watch TV and listen to radio and go to the roller skating rink. Like we had the most normal, our life and the best life we had ever known even though we were still having to earn our keep and work. I mean, we would get paid $5 a week regularly. So in Houston, I could save up my $5 and go to Marshall's and buy a pair of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. There you go. And I could save up again my $5 and go to Marshall's and buy a pair of two-tone Nike tennis shoes, which were all the rage at the time. And then, you know, it took $2 to go to the beauty school to get your hair cut in the Farrah Fawcett wings that were so, you know, popular at the time. Sure. Now, my hair was too thick to actually make wings, so they just kind of went poof on the side. <laughs> but I was sure proud of my Farrah Fawcett wings, okay? <laughs> I bet. Yes, you were. You know, and so I was 13. I had experienced life in Denver that was slave labor. My dad dies in prison. Dan convinces my mom to move back to Denver to become the slaves again. And in my 13-year-old mind, coming of age story, I was like, not just no, hell no. Right. I didn't cuss at the time. Sometimes I do a little bit today. Um, 
you but that it. was the attitude in my heart, you know, just like, mm, no, thank you again. No, thanks. But no, thanks. I felt so invisible and so overlooked that in my mind, I didn't even realize that my mom would miss me if I walked out of the house after talking to Lillian and saying, I don't want to go back to Denver. You know, people moved around, shuffled around like chess pieces on a board. I thought, I'll just shuffle myself over to Lillian's house. Nobody will miss me. And I can stay here and they can all go back to Denver and work like slaves if they want to. But no, thank you. So I walked out of my house with my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and my Farrah Fawcett wings and Nike tennis shoes and, and walked towards my sister's house. I walked a little over three miles that day when she found me and picked me up. So I call that, you know, if you walk a little over three miles, it's a 5k. Yeah. So I call that my 5k to freedom. Wow. That's it. That's very powerful. I mean, you walked your way to freedom. So, okay. I, I want people to watch the documentary and like fill in all the holes and the details because you're, you really, even though you had gotten away from the slave labor there, you were still in a cult. Yes. So you were, you weren't in the worst part of it, but as you continued to grow up, you know, things just kind of became more known. Things happened in the sort of family that you chose with your sister's family and you get to become an adult. You've written this book, The Polygamous Daughter, and this is about the time that I meet you. And when I meet you, you are a devout Christian. Love God, love helping women come through their traumatic experiences and get right in their spiritual formation. And you're just a very passionate speaker and communicator and I, I want to hear a little bit from you about this transition, right? Because you kind of sort of stayed in the cult because you were still with people that were part of it, but then you started to believe in God and you started to build your own belief system. And not just that, but like your own passion for helping other people who've been through trauma. Like where did that come from in you? Well, my sister and her husband, who took me in and finished raising me, they were in the process of inching their way out of the cult. But you didn't announce that you were out because that put a target on your back. And eventually, um, my brother-in-law, Mark, did pay that price, which I write about in the book and, and it's depicted in the documentary. You didn't leave the cult without paying the price but they were inching their way out. They were on the fringe. Um, they were different. I could tell when I went to live with them, that was the beginning of the end for them. And they were out after that because my dad died and it kind of left everything uh, up in the air. And yeah. the factions that uh, took like took the, the violent parts of my dad's teachings continued on and I, I can't tell all their stories because I wasn't there, but um, there was a bloodbath with between those factions. Yeah. And Mark and Lillian uh, enrolled me like 
in, they had that little school that they started in their garage that was part of the accelerated Christian education curriculum that they used. And there was, there happened to be an ACE school, right? Half a mile from their house. So they took all that curriculum, the books, the furniture, everything, the paces, they call them. And they exchanged all of that for my tuition. So they enrolled me in this little Christian school that was half a mile from their house. And it was there that I accepted Christ. I was just, you know, I was just shy of my 14th birthday. And really, that was my first experience with any kind of normalcy. And it was the greatest and grandest thing I had ever experienced in my life. The teachers were so kind, kind of took me under their wings and were so kind and loving when they offered, said, do you want to accept Jesus as your savior at, at a camp? You know, I was like, yes, like who doesn't want this? There you have it. I hope that you got so much out of this episode. I hope you'll save it. You'll download it. You'll revisit it. You'll take all the notes. And I hope that you're going to share it with people that you know that might benefit from some of this information. Thank you so, so much for listening to the Swayology podcast. You can find all of the links for everything that we talked about today in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and take a screenshot and post about it on your Instagram or your Facebook or wherever you like to post. And then tag me because I will also reshare it. It makes my day when you do that, but really what it does is it helps other people like you find the show and build our community. Got comments? I would love to hear from you. Send me a DM on Instagram or head over to my website and shoot me an email. Thanks again for listening. I'm so happy that you're here and so happy to be on this journey with you, both of us together. And I cannot wait to see you next time on the Swayology Podcast.